Luke chapter 2. I'm going to talk to you about the cradle and the cross. It's a magnificent theme of the gospel. The cradle and the cross. Um, verse 36 of Luke chapter, chapter 2. I'd like to, I've, I'd like to um, look at Christmas this morning or the gospel in Christmas through the eyes of Anna and Simeon, right? Two, two uh, people that we don't often look at. And I, I think we can learn some amazing things out of their lives. And uh, so then I've, I've called this the cradle and the cross. And we're going to look first at Anna in verse 36 of chapter 2. It says this, There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. It's a magnificent little cameo here. So the first question to ask is, well, who's this person, Anna? <laughs> Who is she? What part did she play in the story of the gospel? Some of you might have heard of William Barclay. He's a, a writer who's long dead now, but he describes her, Anna as one of the quiet in the land. One of the quiet in the land. Uh, scripture doesn't give much about Anna except these three verses, and it's incredible in three little verses how much we can learn about someone. And uh, I, I want to talk about her fa- family and her name, just to start off, just as some background. Uh, as you might know, Anna is uh, the New, Tef- New Testament equi- equivalent of an Old Testament name, Hannah. And Hannah means grace. Hannah means favor. And so the Old Testament word is Hannah. The New Testament is Anna. And uh, so that's her name. It's amazing that she's anticipating grace coming into the world, as we'll see. And her name points to the very thing that is about to happen. Grace is about to invade our space, about to invade the world in the person of Jesus. And the person that it's revealed to is a lady called Hannah, who has the name of God's grace and God's favor. And it says her father is Phanuel. And that's an interesting name as well, because that means, it means the appearance of the face of God. And if you remember in the Old Testament, there was a guy called Jacob. Remember Jacob? And one of the things that Jacob experiences in his life is he has this experience where he wrestles with God. And you can read about it in Genesis chapter 22. And he wrestles with God in a place called Peniel, P-E-N-I-E-L. And after he's wrestled with God, God touches him on the hip. And from that moment on, he walks with a limp. And uh, he changes the name of that place. Um, because he'd wrestled with God, he changes the name of the place to Peniel, and he says, it's because I've seen the very face of God. And so he changes the, the name of, of, of this place where he wrestled with God. And the root word, Phanuel, of Anna's father, it's the same, the same root word. So it's this thing of grace and favor, and that word speaks of intimacy that we can enjoy with God because we are believers. It speaks about a face-to-face relationship that we can all enjoy with Jesus because uh, of what God has done through him. And so it's amazing that just in the names of these people, something of, of the names point to what God is trying to do. It's pointing towards, towards his gospel coming. It's pointing towards the fact that grace is about to invade the earth in the person of this baby Jesus. And even Phanuel talks about the intimate relationship that we can enjoy with God our Father because of Jesus. Face to face, no mediators anymore, no law, no, nothing in the way, except now we can have an open relationship with Jesus. It's incredible. And it also says that she's from the tribe of Asher. 
tribe of Asher. Asher, you might know this, was the eighth son of Jacob. Now, in those days, it was quite cool for men to have more than one wife. And so they did. So he had a number of wives. And uh, sometimes they took concubines. It's amazing how honest the Bible, isn't it? So sometimes they're slaves. They had children with their slaves. And somehow this is all part of God's picture of redemption for us. It's incredible how honest the Bible is. So he had a, a second, uh, she was the second son of, uh, sorry, Asher was the second son of Leah, who was one of his wives. Uh, and, um, uh, sorry, Zulfa was Leah's servant. And this is one of the children Asher was born to Zulfa. And um, Asher simply means happy. Beautiful, eh? Happy, Asher. If you want a, a name of your child who's got a smiley face, why don't you name him Asher? It means joy. It means happiness, all right? And uh, biblical scholars see that the name is quite significant because Asher was one of the lost tribes of Israel. They didn't know where all the tribes ended up. They weren't quite sure they were, where all these tribes ended up. But here, she's described as being of the tribe of Asher. So they weren't as lost as everyone thought they were because he has someone from the tribe of Asher right in the temple. Uh, one of the lost tribes of Israel. So it's fascinating. So here in the first century, we read of her as uh, one of the lost tribe of, of Israel, tribe of Asher. And I'd like to talk to you secondly about her life, her life situation. I believe our theology, how we understand God, it's my absolute conviction that our theology must be practical. If you cannot live by your theology, it's not good theology. Theology is not theoretical in any way. We can have all these spiritual kind of things where we think we're understanding things in a really mystical kind of way. If it doesn't make a difference to your life, if you can't live by it, it ain't good theology. I want to be able to live well with integrity before God. And that, that for me is what theology, good theology is. It's good theology you can live by. It makes sense of all life situations. It's not theoretical. It's very, very practical. And so here we see this incredible situation of Anna. All of us have different life ex experiences that shape us, that change us, that make us more and more like Jesus. And we, are fa we face all sorts of challenges as we walk through this life. And that's what Jesus said. In this life you can have many troubles, but don't despair. I've overcome the world. I am in you. Greater is he that is in you than he is in the world. All that stuff that Jesus said. All right? And so here, let's look at, at Anna's life. It's, it's a life full of sorrow. It's a life full of sorrow. But at the same time, it's characterized by a remarkable joy. She loses her husband when she has only been married seven years. How many of you have been married more than seven years? Yeah, lots of us. Uh, can you imagine what it must be like to, live your, to lose your spouse? Uh, I, can't, I can't think of anything more stressful than losing your spouse. So she loses her spouse. She's been married seven years. And it says she's, not, she's childless. How many of you got children? Can you imagine what it would be like to live your life without ki your kids? Well, she didn't even have children. And those are the two things that characterized, for, for women in that ancient culture, characterized their significance. was the fact that they were married, they had husbands, the fact that they had an inheritance in their children, they had a future because they were part of the society in that way. So here she is, living her life in a way that was not very positive in terms of a future for her, in terms of her culture. I think her response is remarkable. It says that she's 84 years old. So those things that happened when she was a young woman, she's carried those things right into her old age. She's 84. 
I want to say to you this morning, that combination of things would be destructive for many, many people. It would plunge them into a cycle of despair, self-pity, what has God done to me, what have I done to deserve this? Anna is remarkable. She chooses a joyful, positive future for her life. She, the Bible says she gave herself in the service of God. So she comes and she says, this stuff has happened to me. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give myself to the Lord. And so it describes, it says, she expressed her worship daily in the temple, in prayer, in fasting, and in anticipating Messiah. Anticipating grace was coming. It's incredible. And I've already pointed out that her very name means grace. So she gives herself to worshiping God. She gives herself positively. She, uh, the, it says she's found in the temple. And she has these simple priorities. And here they are. Worship, prayer, and fasting. I want to say what we give our time to, what we really give our time to in a committed way, speaks into what we really value. It shows what we really value. So we can say with our mouths that we, we value a whole lot of stuff, but what we actually give ourselves to and commit ourselves to on a regular basis in terms of our time shows the value of our hearts. That's what Jesus said. He said, where your heart is, your treasure is. What is your treasure? Your treasure is your time, it's your talents, it's your money. Where you put those things over a period of time shows where your heart really is. I don't say that to condemn anyone. I say that to point you to the priorities of Anna's life. <laughs> the priority of her life was worship, prayer, and fasting. And so the Bible uh, doesn't describe much about her prophetic ministry, and I just want to make a comment about that, is that since the time of Malachi, remember I talked to you about Malachi who prophesied about Elijah? The, the, the Bible is silent after Malachi's life in terms of the prophetic. There's nothing much said about the prophetic after Malachi's life, except now, 400 years later, with Anna, a widow, childless widow, with a heart after God, is described as being a voice speaking into her generation. The Bible says she's a prophetess. The Bible says she's speaking into the, the, her culture and her generation. And, and Luke describes her as a prophetess. It's incredible. Remember I talked about the glory that uh, is revealed 600 years later. Now, 400 years later, after the last prophet has spoken, he has another one in the New Testament. The first mention is Anna. Ladies... Come on, what's your ministry? What's God given you? Yeah, come on. doesn't matter if you're man, male, female, slave or free. In Christ, there's freedom for all. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I want to encourage you, whatever your ministry is, ladies, look at this. It should encourage you deeply. First, first person mentioned in the New Testament is a prophet, is a lady. So, um... So Luke doesn't say much about the content of what she prophesied. He simply says she was a, speaking as a spokesperson into her generation. And it, he says also that she gives herself to worshiping, fasting, and prayer night and day. You know what it says to me about Anna? It says to me that's her DNA. It says to me that's what, how she was wired. It says to me that's what she valued. That's what she gave her priority of her life to. The, the compass of her heart was towards God's priorities for her life. And... The very thing that could have pushed her away from God, you know, her life situation, it does exactly the opposite. It pushes her towards God. Isn't that incredible? I've seen after leading church for many years, part of the team of this church, sometimes when people go through hard times, they can either go away from God or they can go towards Him. I want to encourage you, 
when you're going through tough times, the best thing you can do is push into God. The worst thing you can do is remove yourself from the church, from believers, and kind of say, I'm going to fight it on my own. The devil loves that. He'll pick us off one by one, just like that. And we don't want that, do we? So, here's this woman, Anna, faithful for all these years, and here her faithfulness is rewarded in the most extraordinary way. She was where she normally was. She normally was in the temple. She normally was praying. She normally was fasting. She normally was giving herself to things of God. And here she meets a little family from this backward town called Nazareth. And their little family, mom and dad and child, are there to fulfill the law in terms of what the law said about their son. And the son is called Jesus. So she finds herself in the right place at the right time. She's been anticipating grace. She's been anticipating Messiah for all these years. And now at the right place at the right time, God rewards her. It's incredible to me when you read history, how much of history, even in this nation, is marked by ordinary men and women. Just ordinary men and women doing what they normally do and being at the right place at the right time and extraordinary things happen. And then we call them great. They're great men and women. Of course they're great men and women, but largely they are ordinary men and women like you and me, just doing what God's called them to do and extraordinary things happen. I think our culture has got it all screwed up. Instead of people being known these days for great things that they give themselves to, it's like we want the fame without any of the kind of work of just giving ourselves to the gifts that God has given us. Isn't that true? It's kind of screwed up that we have this culture which is like fascinated with fame and celebrity. And they're not even celebrities that are famous because they are celebrities. Like they've done nothing. All they've done is appear on television. And now they, I'm a celebrity getting me out of here. What have you actually done with your life? Have you made a difference to the world? No, I haven't done anything. I'm a celebrity. Come on. Is this, is this too controversial what I'm saying? No, I just think this is, this is nonsense. Come on. God is calling to us much more than that, much higher goals than just being famous. He's calling us to live for Him, for, the, for, for heaven, for eternity, for His people, to give ourselves unselfishly to the, to the community. Not because we want to get anything back, just because we love Him. <laughs> oh, so she's in the right place at the right time. And it says in verse 38, At that very hour she began to give thanks and speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. It's fascinating. At the very hour, it says, it uses that phrase. You know, in one sense, she was doing what she always had done, and that what, that's what makes it even more remarkable and extraordinary to me. She had been doing this for 60 years, if you work it out, the maths of it. 60 years, she was going up to the temple, praying, fasting daily. She could have said on that day, God, you know what? I really deserve a break. I've been doing this for 60 years. You know what? I want to lie in this morning. I want to spend some time with my family. Uh, I just like to hang out with my mates, mates, have breakfast together. Why do I need to be there this morning? I've been doing it for 16, 60 years. God, you see that. Can you imagine if she had done that on that day? You see, none of us know what that day is going to be. And that's the trick. <laughs> if we knew what that day was going to be, we could, we could live in a very different way. But we don't know when that day of blessing is going to be. We don't know when God is going to do something extraordinary through us. I'm not put a, trying to put anything on anyone. I'm just saying, through her faithfulness, through her years of just doing what God had called her to do, 
She was in the perfect place at exactly the right time to see what she'd been longing for for all those years. It is incredible. And so Simeon lifts up Jesus and declares to all the people, Messiah has come. Salvation has come. And she sees it with her own eyes. Man, it's incredible. There's a guy called Herbert Locker, and he wrote a book called All the Women of the Bible. And he says this about Anna. He says, this was no coincidence. Through her long pilgrimage day and night, Anna went to the temple to pray for the coming of Messiah. And though he seemed to wait, she waited for him, believing that he would come. Then one day the miracle happened, for as she entered the temple, she heard the sounds of exaltation and joy proceeding from the inner court. And then from the lips of the venerable Simeon, she heard the words, Now, Lord, let your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And gazing upon the holy child, who was none other than the long-awaited-for Messiah, Anna, too, was ready to depart in peace and be again joined with her husband above. Brilliant. (laughs) It is glorious. So this faithful woman that probably no one even noticed, this widow, 85 years old, in the temple, just in the corner, praying, fasting, worshiping, longing for Messiah. God chooses her to reveal grace coming to the world. God is marvelous. And what is she, she immediately becomes an evangelist. I love that. This faithful prayer warrior. She immediately become, becomes an evangelist. Says, verse 38 says, She immediately begins to speak out to all that are waiting for the redemption of Israel. Man, when a good thing happens to you, you can't keep it a secret. You can't keep quiet. This is redemption. Redemption has come. And she can't keep quiet. She has to say, redemption has come. There are three words in the New Testament that the Bible uses to describe redemption. Three Greek words. Agorazo. Ex-agorazo. And Luo. And they all have to do with the slave market. They all have to do describing the fact that slaves that were once in the slave market are set free. That's what redemption means. Redemption means rescue. It means being set free from chains, from bondage, from slavery. That's what redemption means. And so this phrase, the redemption of Israel, is not just speaking about Israel. It's also speaking about the condition of all of us as human beings. All of us are enslaved to sin. There's not one of us who's had a heart after God ever. All of us are without hope in this world, except for Christ. And so Anna proclaimed this thing, that the slave race of humanity has been set free by Jesus. And the word is used is lutrosis, which comes from lua, being set free from the slave market, which means set free from the the delivery, the the, the sin, uh, the penalty of sin, and, and ultimately the death that sin brings. And it reminds me of another picture in the Old Testament. Anyone remember of the story of Hosea? Hosea was a prophet. He had a wife called Gomer. She was a prostitute. So he chooses to marry a prostitute as a picture of redemption of what God was going to do for Israel. So he marries this prostitute called Gomer. And she chooses to go back to a life of prostitution. So he goes to the slave market. You know what he does? His wife, he buys her back for himself again. 
He pays money and he says, I'm going to, I choose you. I choose you still to come and be my wife. So he buys her back for himself. It's an incredible picture of what Christ has done for us, for you and I. All of us, the Bible says, are slave to sin. We have prostituted ourselves to sin. We have given ourselves to the lust of sin in our lives, and Jesus come into our lives, and he says, I choose to buy you back for myself and set you free from all of that. Thank you, Lord. It's the gospel. This is good news. And so after all these years of waiting and anticipating, Anna now finds she's living in a world where Messiah has come. She's seen Messiah with her very own eyes, and that surely is the heart of what this period of celebration is about. John three sixteen. That's the heart of what we celebrate. For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's what it's about. You know, it's so, so with the warm and fuzzy kind of aspect of the Christmas season, it's so easy to forget the reason that Jesus had to come. And the reason that he had to come is that our sin demands payment, and that only Jesus could take the sin away. Only the perfect lamb could take the sin away. And so this thing of Christmas is really about rescue and redemption. It's about a story of rescue for you and me. That God has come to set us free in the person of His Son. And so I want to ask you, I want to challenge you nicely this morning, because I still want to be liked after this meeting, all right? <laughs> if you have known rescue and redemption yourself, if you know that you've been redeemed and Christ has set you free from the slavery of sin, everything, the bondage, the penalty of death, and it's been covered by the blood of Jesus, if you know that for yourself, can I ask you that you boldly tell someone else? Yes. It's good news. First little cameo, Anna. And it's kind of tied up with this other guy called Simeon. And I just want to look at Simeon for 10 minutes. And the Bible speaks with, of him in these couple of verses again. And if you're following in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, we read this. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. He was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. That's all it says. About Simeon. Incredible how two verses can say so much, eh? This guy, Simeon, also part of the furniture in the temple. He keeps pitching up week after week. Just pitching up at the temple, honoring God. God had given him, him a promise, which we'll look at now. And he's waiting for that promise. That's his mission in life. To honor God, to love Jesus, and to wait for the promise that God had given him. And what does it say? The Bible describes it in another way. It says he was righteous. Righteous. In the broader sense, the word righteous means, refers to a person who's upright, virtuous, someone who's obedient. Uh, it speaks of someone who's living on God's terms, not their own terms. And if you look at the Strong's Concordance, it describes a righteous person as someone who also deals fairly with other people. Isn't that incredible? So it's not only the sense of vertical with God, but it's also horizontal with other people. So devout, righteous, Dealing fairly and appropriately with others. I mean, to describe someone as righteous is actually an incredible thing. It's a noble thing. And now we have a righteousness that comes because of Christ. So we're not trying to earn that when we come to the cross. But he's described before the cross, he's described as a righteous man. It's incredible. He's described as a devout man. Uh, 
Being devout is different from being righteous. Being devout is living out your belief in God. I'm convinced of this. There are many believers in the church. There are few disciples in the church. There's a big difference between a believer and being a disciple. Jesus said we must make disciples, not just believers. Yeah, it's good to believe in Jesus, but to live your life and your life choices around the gospel is becoming a disciple of Jesus. Big difference. And so uh, that's another significant accolade, wouldn't you say? He's righteous, he's devout. It says he's looking for the consolation of Israel. Again, it's the, it's the same, it's a similar phrase, anticipating Messiah, waiting for Jesus. He was living his life again based on a, a very simple anticipation of Messiah. Jesus was coming, Messiah was coming, the Savior was coming. And I think, you know, too many of us, and I've, I have to look at my own life as well, we live our lives too much fixed on the past with our eyes in the rearview mirror, looking at our failures, the past, what might have been, if only I'd done that. You know, Simeon has his eyes fixed firmly on the promise that God had given him, and his eyes are fixed on the future. I want to encourage you this, uh, this season that you reflect on the future of what God has for you. He's done away with your past, with the blood of Jesus. And it says the Holy Spirit is upon him. Isn't that fascinating? The Holy Spirit is upon this man, Simeon. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost is poured out on all flesh, all believers. Up until this point in the Scripture, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and up until this point in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit really is upon specific peoples for specific tasks. And that's how the Bible describes the Holy Spirit, largely. And so for an example of that is, is Samson, who had the Holy Spirit come upon him to, to do a specific thing for the nation of Israel. And so it's interesting that Simeon, he is experiencing the Holy Spirit before the cross in a way that other people aren't. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit is upon him in an extraordinary way. Before the cross, before the day of Pentecost, he is experiencing the blessing of God through the Holy Spirit in his life in a most amazing way which is an accolade from his Father in heaven, saying, this man is righteous, and he's devout, and my Holy Spirit is upon him, and he's anticipating Messiah. It's incredible. So I had to think this week, as I was preparing, if I had to ask for a couple of words to describe me, what would they be? What would other people say about me? Perhaps different people would say different things, because they've experienced me in different ways. So some of it might be nice, some of it might not be so nice. I don't know. But what I'm trying to say to you, this little description of Simeon here is extraordinary. The words that the Bible uses to describe him are righteousness, devotion, full of the Holy Spirit, anticipating Messiah, having a heart after God. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. So, and to this kind of person, again, this faithful, faithful man, God gives this amazing promise in verse 26. He says, Luke says, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Jesus. And so there's this incredible promise that God gives him, this faithful, devout man. And I want to say to you this morning that biblical hope is so much more than our hope-so mentality, like our hope-so kind of sentimentality. It's rugged, it's strong, biblical hope. Why? Because there's an object to our hope. The object of our hope is Jesus. There's a ruggedness. There's, it's a hope that empowers your life. There's, there's a focus to it. The focus of our hope is not just ethereal. The focus of our hope is a person called Jesus, who is the Son of God. That brings extraordinary hope into your life. 
And if you've got that kind of hope, if you're rooted that kind of hope, it gives you a base through which you can live your life in an extraordinary way. I think it's also remarkable that it says that um, it's personal. It says you will not die until you see Messiah. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jewish people had comforted each other in hard times with this anticipation that they would one day see Messiah. And that was their comfort in hard times. And when they were having good times, it was like they rested in that promise that Messiah was to come. And here it's like God draws a line in the sand and he says, he says uh, to, to Simeon, I'm making it more specific than that for you. I'm saying you're not going to die until you see Messiah. So it's very specific for, for him. And uh, what an incredible promise. And again, this, this affects the whole of Simeon's life, how he lives, what he values, and he's living his life, anticipating the moment that Messiah is going to come. We have this promise from Jesus, every single one of us, that he has come, that we might have life, we might have life in all its fullness. Isn't that a brilliant promise for every single believer? And uh, the Holy Spirit is with, with um, Simeon in this kind of extraordinary way. And he's experiencing that. He's living that out. And not only does the Holy Spirit give him the promise, but now the Holy Spirit moves him to the temple so that the promise can be fulfilled. And it says in verse 27, if you're following, Luke chapter 2, verse 27, it says, He came in the Spirit to the temple. So it's like the Holy Spirit is moving him. It's encouraging him. It's refreshing him. It's appointing him. And it says, when, um, And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. It's amazing, huh? It's like this response is just full of satisfaction. It's full of contentment. The whole thing that had driven his life, that had motivated him for so long, had been fulfilled. There's a sense in his life that it's like breathing out. Oh, yeah, Messiah's come. I've seen the glory of God with my own eyes. How could he want anything more? He could die in peace. He had literally held a baby in his arms and he'd looked into the face of God. It's wonderful news. (laughs) It's miraculous good news. And he has an interesting thing. In the midst of all this joy, Simeon's got some bad news for Mary. Extraordinary. She's about to go on this wild adventure with Jesus, Mary, as his mother. But Simeon tells her there's going to be some pain for you along the way. He says that directly to Mary. Look, verse 34. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary's mother, Behold, the child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a son that is opposed. And in brackets in my Bible. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. He says to Mary, A sword will go through your own soul so that thoughts from many hearts might be revealed. Incredible prophecy. So there's this delight, there's this joy. They've anticipated Messiah, both Anna and Simeon, for so long. But that's why I call this message the cradle and the cross. Because in the very heart of Christmas, the cross is there already. And here it is. He points to it. Simeon prophesies about what is to happen with Jesus. And uh, says directly to Mary, there's a sword that's going to go through your very own soul. First step in the process is the cradle. So that Jesus could live 
and go to the cross and save the world. So the first step is celebration, joy, and glory. All their visiting of the angels and all that stuff that we looked at. The final step is fulfilled as Mary stands at the foot of the cross, weeping, looking at her own son, bloody dying, the Holy One of Israel. That's the final step. So we see the cradle, but we certainly have to look and see the cross at the same time. And so Simeon's news is bad news for Mary. It's a bit of pull. Well, the very son that she had birthed with pain physically in her own body, was gonna, she would experience the same pain in releasing him as the sacrifice that God intended for the world. It is absolutely mind-blowing. And so Jesus ultimately pays this price for us. And you know, I was thinking, we've got longings for our own boys. Uh, we've We've um, had prophetic words spoken over them, and God's been very kind, and that's a beautiful thing, and I'm sure you've got similar stories. But I was just thinking on Mary's life. You know, as, the, as Jesus grew, and Mary, she must have reflected back on what Simeon said. She must have thought to herself, what does it mean? What is that thing he said about the sword going through my own heart? What is, what is, what's going to happen? And so there was a sense of anticipation for her as well, but it wasn't quite like it had been for Anna and Simeon. They had, they had in joy and satisfaction seen the fulfillment of the promise of God to them. Mary would feel some pain. She would feel some loss. And so we see the cradle at Christmas, but we also see the glory of the cross at Christmas. And uh, I want to encourage you to reflect upon this part of the story of Simeon and Anna. You know, he'd, he'd experienced the person of Christ with great joy, and he could go and die in peace. I want to ask you, what is your sense of the, your, the sense in your heart as you celebrate over this next uh, while? Is, it, is your heart full of joy, full of contentment, full of gratitude, what God has done for you in the person of Jesus? Or is there a residue of disappointment, a residue of discontent? Is, is Christmas, and again, I'm trying to get away from the thing of the season, but is this, I just want to say this, is, is, is there, is it, is there drivenness in your heart for more at Christmas? Or is there a quiet peace deep in your heart that comes from knowing that I am his and he is mine? Surely that's the heartbeat of the gospel. Surely that's what we live with every single day of the year. I am his and he is mine. That's the joy of the gospel. That's the certainty of the gospel. And the, the spirit of this age... It, it pulls and it pushes us relentlessly towards consumerism, towards commercialism, towards mass consumption, just getting more of everything all the time. And yet I want to say in this little, this little cameo, this, this man, Simeon, this old guy at the end of his life, he reminds us all that there's something far more than just more. The world would say, get more of everything. Simeon is reminding us, saying there's much more than just more. There is Jesus. The fullness of Jesus. With his promise to us, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Hebrews 14.5. So can I, can I just hopefully encourage you, in whatever way you choose to celebrate, whether you make a big deal of Christmas or whether you don't, I'm just asking you to remember this, this Christmas. Can, can, your, can our hearts be marked with contentment? <laughs> can our hearts be marked from knowing Him?
just grateful that we have come into friendship with our Father in heaven, sons and daughters, because of what Jesus has done. Both Anna and Simeon show us that. They, they, they know it in a, in a deep, deep, clear way.